Hi listeners, it's Caitlin. We're excited to announce that we've changed the name of our podcast from Red Mom, Blue Mom to Red View, Blue View. Shelly and I are still your hosts and we will continue to talk about politics, current events, and other interesting topics. Thanks as always for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for joining us for the Red View, Blue View podcast. I'm Caitlin, and I'm a conservative Republican who occasionally leans libertarian. And I'm Shelley. I'm an independent, progressive and left-leaning with a pinch of fiscal conservatism. We are two friends on opposite sides of the political aisle who share a love for talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We may not often agree, but we always learn from each other's points of view and believe it's important to have informed, civil conversations on issues that matter. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us, listeners. We are very fortunate today to have a special guest, Andrew Romanoff. Andrew is a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in 2020. We're sitting right now in Andrew Romanoff's campaign headquarters. In terms of Andrew's background, he won four terms in the Colorado House of Representatives from 2000 to 2008, led the Democrats to their first majority in 30 years, and became one of the youngest people ever elected Speaker of the House. Andrew also won national recognition as one of the most effective legislative leaders in America. More recently, Andrew served as president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, the state's leading advocate for the prevention and treatment of mental health and substance use disorders. Andrew worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center, taught in Central America, and founded the Posner Center for International Development. He received a bachelor's degree from Yale, a master's degree from Harvard, and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law. From a personal perspective, and maybe of interest to our listeners, Andrew's mom is a Democrat and his dad is a Republican. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. And by the way, uh, that is not a combination I recommend. My mom and dad got divorced. But uh, that doesn't bode well for the future of our <laughs> podcast, Andrew. Well, I love them both. I just decided not to talk politics with my dad. <laughs> Andrew, my first question for you is about money, or you might say economic policy. Sometimes I think we get distracted with the more sen- sensationalized issues that are in the news, but that don't actually affect Americans on a daily basis. Caitlin and I discuss a lot of these issues in this podcast, and we, like many Americans, have strong views that are very far apart from each other. But as we get closer to 2020, I wonder if those in office and those running for office could focus more on important issues that really affect our lives. And I think one of those is money. A friend recently said to me, money is everything meaning money in the form of campaign contributions, lobbyists, special interests, corporations, the influence of billionaires. Money has such an influence over American politics that we, the people, don't have. I also think that people in both parties and uh, unaffiliated voters like me and those who sometimes don't vote are interested in money-related issues that affect them every day, like their ability to pay for school, get a job, earn a decent wage, taxes, how they can retire, and so on. I know you speak as one of your priorities on economic prosperity for all, Um, but can you be a little more specific for us today and tell us one or two policies that you would propose or sponsor as a U.S. Senator that relates to money that will affect most Americans on both sides of the aisle? Sure. I'd offer a couple of thoughts. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to join you. I really appreciate it. the minimum wage hasn't risen in over a decade, even as inflation has gone up. So the minimum wage has lost its purchasing power. The House passed a bill to raise the minimum wage, phase in a rate that gets us to $15 an hour, puts us back where we should have been if we'd been keeping up with inflation all along, and then indexes that wage uh, to inflation. That's a proposal that makes sense to me. I think it at least makes sense for the Senate to consider a debate. Senator McConnell, the majority leader, has refused to even allow a hearing on that bill, which passed the House months ago. So that's one plan that would make a difference. Uh, I want to make sure that we tackle the cost of health care, which is crippling uh, families and small businesses throughout the state. I ran a small business, an organization with 18 employees over the last four years. And I'll tell you, we covered most of the premiums, but it was hard to do when the premiums were climbing by double digits each year. Uh, so that's another priority that I'll bring to this U.S. Senate. Hi, listeners. It's Caitlin and Andrew. Very nice to meet you. I really uh, thank you for your public service, many years in the state legislature here in Colorado, and also admire the work that you and your team uh, we're doing and continue to do, obviously, at Mental Health Colorado. So thank you for joining us. I wanted to just touch on the question of the minimum wage. You mentioned that you support the House proposal that brings us to $15 kind of over a phased approach. Um, do you think the minimum wage should be considered a living wage? Yes. 
Okay. And then one of the other priorities on your economic webpage talks a little bit about um, education. You have some uh, policy ideas and, and information there on your website that folks can read. Would love to hear your thoughts a bit more on this idea of post-secondary education, regardless if that's traditional college or vocational school or somewhere in between. I know you have some experience working with community colleges here in the state of Colorado. What are your thoughts on this proposal that some on the Democratic presidential candidate side have proposed around offering some sort of free public uh, college education? So I say a few things, and it's a good question, especially in today's economy where the jobs that are increasingly being created in this competitive internationalized market require something more than a high school diploma. So once upon a time in America, you could have graduated from high school taken a job and earned enough money to support your family, maybe buy a home, even save enough for retirement. But those days uh, are dwindling or gone. So what we need to do, it seems to me, as you suggested, Caitlin, is invest in post-secondary education. We're putting together a proposal, and I don't have the numbers uh, at hand to say, okay, what does it mean for students in America to avoid being crippled by a trillion and a half dollars of debt? Uh, what does it mean for us to make sure in partnership with both state governments and the federal government uh, that we really create a commitment to community college, to public universities? I taught, as you know, in several of Colorado's community colleges over the last 20 years at Red Rocks at Metro at Community College of Aurora. Uh, what does it mean for us to make sure that students who are graduating from high school actually have the skills they need either to take jobs or to pursue post-secondary work? because a lot of the students I taught needed remedial education, and many of them ended up uh, dropping out. So I think all those are reasonable questions for us to engage uh, over the next uh, 14 months in this campaign and over the next six years, I hope, as a U.S. senator. I didn't start this campaign with the assumption that I had this all figured out, and I'm trying to learn from students and parents and uh, teachers I meet across the state. I will tell you, just with respect to my own experience in Colorado, we made a commitment as a state back in 1876 uh, in our constitution to create a thorough and uniform system of free public schools. Uh, it's more than a century later, and I think a lot of kids are still waiting because the truth is, in this state, as in so many others, uh, your access to education, to quality education, still depends to a great extent on your zip code or your parents' bank account. Uh, and that strikes me as inequitable and, as I argued in testifying in a court, as inherently unconstitutional, at least according to the, the rules that we laid out uh, in Colorado. Yeah, I will admit I have kind of mixed feelings about this idea around free public college, and I appreciate that it's a very noble goal. I agree with you uh, as we think about the global economy and the future of what jobs may look like, that coming out of a high school uh, with a high school diploma only is probably not going to be enough. Not saying every kid needs to go to CU Boulder, but some sort of post-secondary is important. I agree with you there. Where I get a little bit wrapped around the axle, I think, on my end is from two elements. Number one, I want to understand or make sure, rather, that there is some responsibility that that student is bringing to the table. So if we're going to go ahead and offer students coming out of high school free college in whatever shape or form that looks like, I want to make sure that there is some accountability and responsibility on the part of the student to take advantage of that opportunity fully. What I mean by that is, you know, having good attendance, achieving good grades, et cetera, et cetera. I want to make sure that our taxpayer dollars aren't invested in those students that aren't taking it seriously. The other piece that I think is interesting, it seems to me that there's also an opportunity to change things for a place like CU Boulder. Let's just say you have an engineering uh, undergrad or a sociology undergrad. The My understanding is the tuition to students today is the same, right? Regardless of what their future earnings potential is, mm -hmm. CU Boulder doesn't really care if Johnny's coming in getting an engineering degree or sociology degree. They're getting the same tuition. How do we change that system so that there's not only uh, skin in the game on the part of the student to make a smart choice about what they want to study and what the long-term returns are going to be on that college investment, but then also on the part of the institutions so that they are also having skin in the game to make sure that they are pricing their degrees essentially relative to the earning potential. I know we talk about student debt and how that's crippling so many people well into their 40s and beyond. Mm -hmm. That seems like an element of it as well. I know I just threw a lot at you there, but what are your <laughs> thoughts on those elements? Yeah, I haven't thought as much about the last question you asked. Um, I will say, and I think we agree on this, that we ought not glorify the four-year degree as the be-all and end-all because the message we send to the two-thirds of Americans who don't end up with a bachelor's degree is that somehow uh, their education is worth less or that they themselves are worth less. And that's the wrong message because most folks don't get a degree like that. So we got to make sure as we're talking about post-secondary education that we include apprenticeship programs, vocational education, um, some means of continuing education. And I will tell you, not just into your early 20s, but lifelong learning. I was talking to somebody in Fort Collins yesterday who uh, teaches adult education. 
the days when you could take a job that would last you for 40 years also are, are those days are changing because now our kids may end up with jobs for which we don't even have a name yet or may end up with multiple careers. And that means that their learning and our their investment in education has got to change over time. I think this is a, a, a new economy and to some extent the policy hasn't caught up with the changes in this economy. And it's why I was proud to work in the community college system, which is doing to some extent, I think what you described, uh, teaming up with businesses to understand the needs of the job, mark, job market and make sure that their graduates are actually meeting those needs and filling uh, the jobs that employers are, are creating. I'll tell you just one other thing because it reflects my experience as Speaker of the House. Um, when I became Speaker, we had fallen as a state to 48th uh, in the nation in job growth and 49th in public support for higher education. There's clearly a connection because we're at risk of losing jobs to other states that better educate their workforce. For a long time, I think in Colorado, the, the economic development strategy seemed to be just lure businesses here by promising folks that it's pretty. Uh, and we can coast by on our good looks as a state for a while. Um, but if you shortchange education, if you, in fact, as we were poised to do, really wipe out public support for higher education altogether, uh, then I think you're at risk, risk of, of decimating your economy, too. I think that's a really good point. And as a country, we want um, good students who have a passion to go to school to be able to, and those who don't have money to be able to go and to study what they want to study, frankly. You, you mentioned, you know, state by state differences in education impacting the job force. It's the same priority in the United States. We should have a focus on being competitive. The way we do that is to become even more educated and to, to stay competitive with education in this country. Can I just share one story with you from that experience? So in the, the last year I spent in the legislature, I sponsored a bill called the Building Excellence Schools Today Act, or BEST. We named it BEST because we wanted to make it really hard for anybody to vote against. Nobody could be against the BEST law. And I think it passed by a vote of almost 99 to 1. It was a billion-dollar investment in the repair and construction of schools in some of the lowest income and most rural parts of our state. I sponsored that law in partnership with Carrie Kennedy, who was the state treasurer at the time, because of the kids we met and the students and parents and teachers we talked to across the state, including folks, for example, in the San Luis Valley, one of the most beautiful and poorest parts of the state. And I'll just share with you one story about that experience, because I think it's easy to get lost in a conversation about millions or billions of dollars for kids. Carrie and I met a young woman in San Luis Valley who was embarrassed when we visited her school because the kids there were sent to study in trailers that had been parked outside the school building and designated as temporary educational facilities. But the trailers had been there for 30 years. Hard to call them temporary at that point. Uh, and this young woman we met turned to the state treasurer and me and asked us a question that has stuck with me ever since. She said, well, how come you don't care as much about me and kids like me as you do about kids back in Denver or wherever you're from? I thought, well, you deserve... A better answer to that question. So Carrie and I went back to the state capitol, assembled a coalition of Democrats and Republicans, uh, created a, a proposal uh, that turned into a law to repair and rebuild schools in these low-income communities, required the districts themselves to have some skin in the game. So they had to go to the ballot and get voters to approve an investment and then match those dollars on a sliding scale based on the district's ability to pay. Uh, because we took this conviction seriously that the quality of your education should not depend on your zip code, not at least in a state like ours. And we passed that law, and today there are 400 new school buildings that have sprouted up or been repaired in some of the poorest parts of our state. We made that decision, by the way, not because the young woman, young woman we met in the San Luis Valley had made a contribution to our campaign or, uh, or formed a political action committee or hired a lobbyist to prowl the corridors of the Capitol. We thought we, we should value her not because of her net worth, but just because of her basic worth as a human being. Uh, and that's the principle that we've lost in the kind of pay-to-play politics that's corrupted our democracy and soured Americans about participating in this process. That's a really good story, Andrew. And uh, on, a, uh, on a national level, with respect to post-secondary education, I similar, similarly think every hardworking student should be able to get an education even if they can't afford one. Well, and the good news is, if our goal is to drive kids into post-secondary, the data shows that as of 2017, or excuse me, 2018, um, we're actually at the highest percentage historically, about 70% of rec recent high school graduates are going into college. Um, that's true across the board, and then that's also true we're seeing historically high averages, or percentages rather, 
uh, even among low-income students. So hopefully those kids that want that and and uh, want that challenge are finding opportunities to do so. Andrew, I'd like to uh, move on to one other economic question just before we move to other topics, if you don't mind. Um, going back to your campaign priority, you've got a great web page uh, with all of your uh, platform issues there called Expand Our Prosperity. But one thing that you mentioned on there is that you state that the wealthiest Americans need to, quote, pay their fair share. I would love to understand from you, how do you define a wealthy American and what do you think their fair share should be? Well, the tax code offers some definitions based obviously on the income rates that are picked. I think the top uh, federal income tax rate of about 37% is set on Americans making half a million dollars or more a year. That strikes me as a as a wealthy American. Uh, it's a fair challenge. And in the course of this campaign, we'll lay out a tax policy that identifies the what we believe, I believe, to be the appropriate rates. Um, I think the, the principles that ought to guide this discussion are what is uh, both equitable so that people don't pay a disproportionate share of their burden, of, of their uh, income, especially at the lower end of the economic ladder, what's efficient uh, so how can you collect this thing with as minimal administrative costs as possible? Um, and what's hardest to game? Because I think what a lot of Americans resent is the fact that uh, under today's ca- tax code, uh, you can hire an army of lawyers and accountants to just wiggle out of paying anything at all. Um, so we've laid out a set of priorities and principles, and, and it's fair for you to ask sort of what numbers apply. And uh, I don't have the numbers at the at my fingertips, but uh, I hope to offer those details as the campaign unfolds. Certainly, I'd be very interested in that. Um, many of our listeners know that I come from a small business family. My dad's a small business owner here in Colorado. So often uh, what kind of puts me uh, a little bit skeptical of this idea of wealthy Americans is, as you may know, Andrew, or probably know from your own experience, um, small business owners that are running their business as an S-corp, right, that that income kind of flows into their personal income taxes. So, you know, someone like my dad who's running some retail shops here in, in Colorado, I wouldn't consider him wealthy necessarily. But if you looked at his income taxes, you might think he is because of how his business is structured. So to me, I think it is important, and I appreciate that your campaign will develop the, the specifics. I think it is important as we talk about wealthy Americans, and I know wealth is kind of vilified lately, in some circles at least, this idea of being equitable and and fair share, um, to me it's important to know exactly what that means. Uh, I love asking this question. Shelley already knows the answer, so don't answer, Shelley. But I'll, I'll ask you, Andrew, I'm just curious if you know this. What do you think the income cutoff is or the income threshold is for the top 10% of income earners uh, for 2016, according to the IRS? About $100,000 a year. Yeah, it's a bit higher, 139000 And those top 10%, they're paying about 70% of income taxes. So again, thinking about you know being equitable, I wonder about that. Top 25%, the income threshold is 81000 a year. That top 25% is paying 90% of income taxes. So that's why I think the numbers are important, and I look forward to seeing that. Sure. And I'll tell you, just again, having run a small business in effect for the last four years, one of the things, as I mentioned, I think earlier, was that the cost of health care was really hurting our ability uh, to continue to, to operate. Um, I know a lot of small business owners I've talked with across Colorado are facing a similar burden, and they don't have the advantage that large corporations have of, of hiring sort of a, a whole fleet of, uh, of tax lawyers uh, to avoid paying uh, their fair share. So um, I want to make sure since most businesses in Colorado are small businesses, um, since they represent the lifeblood of our state's economy, uh, that they are not crippled by these costs as well. And I want to point out, as an unaffiliated voter who is fairly conservative financially, the current Congress and the person you're running against, Cory Gardner, has been supportive of Trump's tax law, tremendous rise in deficit, uh, and a tax law that does nothing for small business owners like your dad, Caitlin. It is focused on the ultra, ultra wealthy um, billionaires, and specifically Trump's tax law um, excluded in an unprecedented fashion benefits to people who work for a living, giving only a lot of the cuts that were in that um, tax cut to people who do not work, who earn money from, for example, real estate investment. I don't think that Cory Gardner and uh, the Republican Party and Donald Trump can ever be seen as fiscal conservatives and, and have helped small business owners at all with respect to uh, tax policy. 
Well, and this is Caitlin. I, you've said that before, Shelley, that Trump's Tax Cut Act um, specifically excludes people that work for a living. I'm not quite sure what that means. I wish my dad was here, actually, because we had this conversation last week. He actually told me he has seen a significant benefit from the tax plan. Um, his accountant said that this is the best tax situation that my dad has been in in about a decade. And I can tell you from my own experience as a small business owner, I have my own LLC for my business. Um, I just learned of some new tax regulations that are going to save me a bundle on my taxes this year. So I don't know. I, I think obviously that's a sample of two, but I think broadly making the statement that it's not helping any small business owners, uh, based on my knowledge, is just is just not correct. I served with Cory Gardner in the State House. I don't know if I mentioned this uh, to you when when we met. Uh, so I got to know him really well. Um, I like him as a person. I will not spend the next fourteen months questioning his character or his patriotism because I happen to know that uh, he loves this country just like you and I. Um, I do think it's a shame that we're paying a salary to a senator who hasn't held a town hall meeting in almost two years. And I'm talking about a public event that you advertise in advance, open to the public. We're trying to do those kind of meetings almost every night. So if people go to andrewrelmanoff.com slash events, they'll find house parties and coffee shops and brew pubs. I'll show up for weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> like I'm trying to be as accessible and transparent and available uh, during the campaign as I hope to be when I'm the next U.S. senator. Well, and this is Caitlin. I will say as a conservative and someone who is probably going to vote for Gardner, uh, I absolutely agree with what you just said. I find his lack of accessibility to his constituents and his electorate, uh, excuse me, his voting block of Republicans and others here in the state uh, pretty disappointing. So I appreciate you being willing to spend time with us and others. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next question, Andrew. On guns, uh, Caitlin and I did a episode recently on the red flag law that passed in Colorado. I know you at Mental Health Colorado were a supporter of that law, and I appreciate that. I think it's a progressive and good law that we have passed here, and I argued in that episode that it is definitely constitutional, unlike what some have said, it's something that's needed on a national level. I'm a proponent of other gun control legislation. Um, in fact, after Sandy Hook, I swore that I'd never vote for someone again who wasn't brave enough to pass gun control legislation, despite the immense political pressure not to. Caitlin, on the other hand, and some other conservatives would not vote for someone who says they'll propose serious gun control legislation. So this makes it a tough question for any candidate for Congress. There's no way you can please both of us <laughs> on this. I learned that from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll go ahead and ask you specifically, will you propose gun control legislation? And if so, what specifically will you propose? Will it be an assault weapon ban, a licensing requirement, an ammunition limit, or something else? So it's a fair question, and we answered it, at least in part, in our website by laying out positions on 10 different uh, proposals, including universal background checks. I'll focus on the red flag law, or what some people call an extreme risk protection order, because I had hoped it would become a point of consensus between the two parties. It's not going to solve every tragedy or stop every shooting or even prevent every suicide. Uh, suicides, as you know, account for most gun deaths in America. Uh, but it has been shown to be effective in other states. And I'll just give you one example. And we should d define the terms here of, of what this law entails because it's the subject of a lot of disinformation across the state right now. So the law that Colorado passed, like a dozen other states, says if you pose a significant danger to yourself or others, and a loved one or a law enforcement officer is willing to testify to that effect in court under penalty of perjury, which is a crime, a judge should be able to consider that evidence and issue, if the judge agrees, an order, an extreme risk protection order, to remove weapons from your home for a temporary period of time, two weeks under Colorado's law. At the end of that period, you get your guns back unless the judge concludes by a standard of clear and convincing evidence that the danger persists. Clear and convincing, by the way, is the higher, highest standard of evidence in, in civil law. So when the opposition to this proposal tells you that they're holding out for a higher standard, we ought to ask, well, what standard did you have in mind? Um, Connecticut's had a law like this on the books for more than 20 years and found that for uh, every 10 homes where a weapon was removed, a suicide was averted. Um, as you know, because we talked before we started, uh, this crisis is profoundly personal, not simply statistical to, to my family and me, because I lost someone I loved to suicide almost five years ago. A first cousin I thought of like my kid's sister. Our state has one of the highest suicide rates in the nation, the ninth highest rate in the nation. Uh, and we're going to do everything we possibly can, at least I tried at Mental Health Colorado, to reduce that death toll. Even though it's too late to bring back my little cousin, I want to spare other families from the anguish we've suffered. We're losing 100 Americans a day to gun violence. Um, I happen to believe we would do better as a country if we could reduce that number. Ultimately, of course, our goal ought to be to zero, 
but even at 99 a day would be an improvement. So I'm looking for ways in good faith to reduce these tragedies. And what's most frustrating to me in the course of this debate is the unwillingness, again, on the part of Senator McConnell and his Republican caucus to even allow a hearing uh, on these proposals. Uh, We could have a debate in the U.S. Senate, not just on this podcast, about the effectiveness of universal background checks. Will they stop everybody intent on getting a weapon from from buying one and using one for the wrong purposes? No. But have they been shown to offer some effect in other states? Yes. Do they square with the Constitution? Yes. And so the answer to the question ought to be when the U.S. Senate is at least allowed to debate this issue, the the answer that Cory Gardner ought to give is yes. Well, I think you won't get any disagreement for Shelley, from Shelley or me around the need to debate these issues, be it gun, gun <laughs> well, policy you, or other things, right, on right. the floor of the, the Congress, either on either side. Andrew, you just alluded to kind of constitutionality of some of these proposals that have been put forth um, either by the House, which aren't getting to the Senate, or right. by folks on the left. And I think for myself and probably many conservatives and frankly most people i think you know the goal with many of these gun policies is that they meet two criteria number one they don't infringe on the second amendment rights of law abiding americans folks like myself that are law abiding gun owners and then the second piece is are they actually going to be effective and so for someone like me and, and like shelley said we've done a whole separate issue or episode rather on red flag laws but as we think about other things like universal background checks or high capacity magazine bans or bans assault weapons, however those are defined, I think the piece that I struggle with is I'm not yet convinced or persuaded that those things are actually going to make a difference, at least as we think about perhaps non-suicide gun violence. And I know that those often come up in response to mass shootings, which are terrible and tragedies and obviously impact the psyche of the entire country. But, you know, I'm not I, I, I'm not convinced that a universal background check, for example, is going to necessarily prevent mass shootings. And so that's where I struggle is understanding how does it impact a law abiding American versus someone who's hell bent on committing a crime and doing an act of violence? Is it really going to just feel good or is it actually going to do good? Well, let me see if I can actually surprise you uh, by agreeing in part that none of the laws we passed will stop every mass shooting. And in some ways, these horrific and uh, increasingly frequent and devastating and unimaginable uh, mass shootings warp our debate uh, because the question gets asked often by the gun lobby, uh, what law would have stopped Harris and Klebold at Columbine or Lanza and Newtown? Uh, What law would have prevented these shootings? And sometimes the answer might be no law would have. Uh, But it's really the wrong question that they're posing. The question that we're debating here tonight is really what can you do to reduce the death toll um, from 100 a day to some lower number, which would obviously uh, be better. In Colorado, which has passed universal background checks, we found that some people tried to buy a gun uh, and failed the background check and were unable to buy the weapon. Now, can I tell you with certainty that they didn't find a way around it and buy a weapon um, on the black market by some other means? I can't. Um, but what we're after here is to at least um, put up a, a speed bump. Uh, and, and by the way, just to offer a, a gentle analogy, people run red lights and stop signs all the time. But we don't simply remove red lights and traffic lights and stop signs uh, because they don't stop everybody from violating. We do it because we know that they'll 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 make a dent. And I think that the same applies here. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, I'd like to maybe touch on a a couple points that you made. I have a campaign email that your office sent out uh, last week or so, uh, September 4th. I'm glad you're on our email list. And by the way, if your listeners want to join, they can sign on to at andrewrelmanoff.com. So uh, this email that I'm referring to was uh, shortly after the terrible shooting in Midland, Texas. And in your email, Andrew, and I don't know if you write these personally, but you, you basically pose the question to the recipients, whose rights are hurt by a background check. And that was in response, it sounds like Cory Gardner was asked about, um, you know, changing his mind about gun control coming out of these, uh, you know, shootings that we've had. Uh, and he said he's not going to hurt rights in order to protect rights. So your question is, whose rights are hurt by a background check? And is your right to a weapon of war more important than my right to live? So I'd love to talk about that issue of whose rights are hurt by a background check. And again, I'm trying to err on the side of watching out for law-abiding gun owners. So let's say you have two private citizens. Uh, they live in Creed, Colorado, which is the county seat of Mineral, beautiful part of the country, uh, yeah. excuse me, beautiful part of the state. Been there several times. And 
I was looking it up actually online before I came into this conversation. Their nearest uh, FFL, federally uh, federal firearm licensee dealer, someone who could actually perform that background check is 20 miles away. And there's obviously expense there and things like that. So if you've got two law-abiding citizens, private transfer, they've worked out the terms of their arrangement to sell a gun to each other. Don't you think that that is infringing on their rights to, to force them to drive 40 miles round trip, pay fees, et cetera, et cetera? How do you kind of reconcile that? I don't believe that the impediment that the law would uh, Im- impose is um, too burdensome in comparison to the rights of all citizens, all residents of Colorado, to at least reduce the, the rate of gun violence as a universal background check uh, would do. And look, we've already made this decision as a country at some point, right? We've said some... 80 years ago, that there were some weapons we were going to try to reduce access to. You don't have the right, for example, to, to you know, walk down the street with a bazooka or to drive a tank through the streets, um, even though you might argue, I suppose, uh, under um, a sort of a warped reading of the Second Amendment, that Americans have uh, the right to any firearm of any weapon of any kind. So we've actually made a decision as a country that we're prepared to draw a line at some point. And then the question becomes, well, where should the line be drawn? I mean, it is, as you could argue, I suppose, that um, the fact that federal law prevents me from buying and driving a, a tank um, infringes on my right. Or take an easier example, like a, a fully automatic weapon, um, a machine gun, that those are off limits. Isn't that an infringement on my right, you might ask? Uh, and I suppose, it, by your definition, it is. So the question then becomes, I think, well, does does that right um, that gets infringed um, offset uh, the advantages that that restriction offers? And, and I don't believe that it does. And I agree specifically just recently with Dayton, we saw that that was one of that was one mass shooting that, you know, may have been avoided with universal background checks, certainly multiple uh, suicides. Similarly, I don't find the inconvenience of having to um, obtain a background check to come even close to uh, lives that are lost, even if, if that doesn't prevent every single shooting. And so, as Andrew points out, no one law will prevent all of gun violence in America, but two or three reasonable laws that really don't impede um, very much on uh, law-abiding citizens will save thousands and thousands of lives. Um, I have no doubt of that. So I've always been offended that the United States Congress has failed in its most important duty, which is to keep us safe uh, and out of harm's way. And uh, I think it's very important to get a candidate in who is willing to uh, do something brave on this issue. You know, I, I had this exchange. Uh, I can't say this exchange because she didn't respond. But I, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who I gather is considering running for governor of uh, Arkansas, tweeted the other day about uh, the God-given rights that are enshrined in the Constitution, including the right to, to own firearms. Uh, it strikes me that if you read not just the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence, you'll find a reference uh, to, to inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, rights uh, with which we're endowed by our uh, creator. So um, I'm glad that you're erring on the side of citizens, but I wanted to make sure that we're talking about all the, the, the rights that we enjoy, um, not just the right uh, to buy any weapon of any kind from anyone for any reason at any time, which is not actually a, an absolute right. No, I, I understand that. I, I Again, I come back to my right and my owning firearms as a law-abiding citizen. I'm unclear on how that is infringing, as you put in your email, on your right to live. That's the piece that's, that's a missing piece. Now, if a criminal has a firearm and they're intent on doing harm, Arguably, that criminal is infringing on my right to live as well, right? That's not that's not a, a gun owner, non-gun owner issue. But but just having law-abiding gun owners, by their very nature, by their very name, abiding the laws, how is that putting your rights at or your life in jeopardy? I, I just want to correct you, Caitlin, because that's not what the email said. Andrew's email talked about background checks and what, what rights are lost by doing background checks, not by law-abiding citizens owning guns. So I think he's he's talking about gun control legislation, not your right to own a gun in your home. Well, verbatim, the email says, is your, quote, right to a weapon of war, and I'm just kind of generalizing firearms, so we can talk about weapons of war, more important than my right to live. Actually, it says whose rights are hurt by a background check. No, but, it, says, um, it says both things. I think yeah. you're both right. I'm trying to make peace here, even if I couldn't among my parents. So, <laughs> look, I, 
if you uh, pass a background check, you get to buy a gun. So your rights actually haven't been taken away. Your rights haven't been hurt. You're right. You had to drive. It sounds like out of the way if you're in Creed. It's a beautiful part of the state. By the way, I'll put in a plug for the Creed Repertory Theater. But your rights actually haven't been taken away. Um, and and for what it's worth, more than 90% of Americans support background check requirements, including the vast majority of gun owners. I've talked to many, not just here in the metro area, but on the Western Slope, who have nothing to fear. Because for exactly the reason you just described, they're abiding by the law. And if they have to pass a background check, that seems like literally the least we can do. If we can't agree on that, and if we can't even have a hearing on that in the U.S. Senate, then I don't see we're ever, ever going to make a dent in this problem. One more question on this. I promise I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I know universal background checks has been the focus, at least, of a lot of the gun policy discussion lately. Andrew, from your perspective, how do you actually enforce universal background checks? How would you actually enforce uh, background checks on private transfers? Yeah, that's a fair question. And we ought to make sure that there are mechanisms in place by which people who want to comply with the law actually have a safe and responsible way to do so and that we make sure that folks who aren't complying um, are held accountable. So the, under the scenario that you described, the purchase between two citizens would have to take place at a federally uh, licensed uh, firearms dealer. But they're self-selecting into that, right? So the example coming out of the Midland shooting, um, there's been a lot in the news about how that Midland shooter uh, went through traditional background checks. He was rejected. The system worked, which is good. But then he went to a gun dealer in Lubbock who was a criminal on his own. He was illegally manufacturing guns and he sold it to this guy. So the, the concept around universal background checks, the expectation is in that scenario, you're expecting those two folks to self-select into a background check to, to drive themselves over to an FFL dealer. That's the piece where, again, I'm not sure it feels good, but is it actually doing good? Because how do you, how on earth do you enforce it? Well, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at the evidence from states that have actually made background checks close to universal and seen a uh, a corresponding reduction in the, the the violations that we're trying to uh, to prevent. So again, I, if we're holding out for a law that's going to be obeyed 100% of the time, and the effect of which is to eliminate all gun violence in America, we'll pass nothing. And it's worth pointing out, although I don't attribute this to you, Caitlin, that on the part of the gun lobby, that's actually the goal, to pass nothing, to accept no restrictions at all. Uh, there's a group in Colorado, as you probably know, called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, which considers the National Rifle Association uh, too moderate. Uh, the NRA itself, for what it's worth, in principle, if not in practice, supports proposals like the red flag law. At least the last time I checked, and it's been a while, the National Rifle Association's website says, yeah, uh, there are people who pose a significant danger to themselves or others who ought not to be allowed to, to buy uh, firearms. In practice, of course, the NRA has found fault with every single proposal that's been offered along these lines, which makes you wonder whether their principled support uh, is anything more than a, a ruse. But um, I think most Americans understand that losing 100 of us a day to gun violence is not acceptable and that we should therefore not accept it. And I'd also add that uh, on a national level, we don't have to take your word for it that some of these laws will work because when you look at every other country in the world um, that has implemented some of the gun control legislation that you suggest, there are many, 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 many fewer gun deaths. I just to, can I pause on that point, Shelley? So I do think it, the most puzzling part of this debate to me has been the gun lobby's determination to offer other explanations beyond this arsenal of firearms, which now outnumbers people in the United States, to point to things uh, like mental illness, a subject in which I obviously have a great deal of interest and a cause that we all share, um, to point to video games or violent movies as the explanations for the death toll in America that exceeds our counterparts uh, around the world. I put this question to a friend uh, on the other side of this debate. I said, well, if, if it's mental illness that's responsible, if it's violent movies or video games, why is it that other nations, which all share those challenges, don't have the same rate of gun violence as we do? I do think the question about why do we have more gun violence, suicides or otherwise, but particularly, again, I'm going to focus on the non-suicide examples just because, again, mass shootings and things are, are always in the news. I, I do think it's interesting to understand what are the other factors. It seems to me, again, as a gun owner, that the gun is often blamed, that we don't have enough laws, that we don't have enough restrictions on, on gun ownership, what have you. 
I like to use the example of the AR-15, and I think everybody sitting here realizes that AR-15s or AR-15-style rifles have become kind of the weapon of choice for many mass shootings, not everyone, but many of them. AR-15s were developed, I think, 60 years ago. The first mass shooting that used an AR-15 was in 2007 in Wisconsin. At that point, AR-15s had been available for civilian use uh, for 40 years, had never been involved in a mass shooting. All of the sudden, from 2007 till now, the last 12 years or so, they've become kind of the weapon of choice. So that, to me, begs the question, if they were available for 40 years and we never had a single mass shooting, and now that same weapon is being used for mass shooting, is the problem the weapon? Should we be confiscating AR-15s like Beto O'Rourke has, has proposed in the most recent Democratic debate? That argument doesn't hold as much water for me because we have history that shows that there were plenty of those guns out in the civilian market and there was never a mass shooting. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Well, my thought is that um, in the last 20 years, we've seen such a rise in mass shootings uh, using some of these military style weapons. That alone, those deaths alone are definitely reason enough to pass an assault weapon ban. Again, no one law will solve all gun deaths, but uh, it's absurd to not to try and make our citizens safer. But that's not... Respectfully, that's not answering the question. We had, quote unquote, assault weapons, which I know most on the left, including you, Shelley, I think include AR-15 in that. They were around for 40 years before they were used for a mass shooting. So what what changed, right? Not, it wasn't the availability of that gun. It wasn't the availability of, quote, assault weapons to the civilian market. What else changed? That's what I'm trying to challenge the conversation. And this is where, Andrew, I think your experience with mental health are there other factors? Is it just a function of we have too much arsenal in this country? We have 100 million guns that are out there and they're too easy for folks to get that want to do harm? Or are there other factors that we should be having a conversation about? Because as a conservative, it feels like the go-to is always more gun laws. And I'm just not convinced that that's the answer. So I, I say a couple of things. I don't know what accounts for the uptick that you described. In fairness, uh, I, I will say that we have no reason to believe that the incidence of mental illness in America exceeds that of other countries. There, there's nobody's offered a, uh, those sorts of statistics. And I think it is possible for us to actually walk and chew gum at the same time here. Uh, it's possible for us to say, as I've done for the last four years, that we ought to both make it easier for people who pose a, a significant danger to themselves or others to get the mental health care they need and harder for them to get the weapons they shouldn't have. Um, I recognize that the NRA wants us to focus at least nominally only on one part of that equation, and I would have welcomed their help if they offered it when I was the president of that organization um, when it comes to mental health care. But we can't ignore, I think, the the absurdly easy access that we uh, provide for firearms in America, because that is a factor that distinguishes us from other countries. And, and I don't mean this to be entirely rhetorical, but if somebody, again, in the course, not just of this conversation, but a Senate hearing says, we, we found it. Uh, the U.S. is unique in some other way uh, that no other country on earth shares. And that is actually the key uh, to this massive rate of gun violence. Uh, I'm all ears. One quick question, Andrew, maybe a yes or no answer for you, from you if you feel comfortable. Do you agree with some sort of confiscation of guns, either AR-15s or otherwise, that have been proposed recently? We support a voluntary buyback program, and I think that's the proposal that we'll be rolling out as well uh, in the in the weeks to come. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, your answers to those questions and also for sharing your personal experience with us. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I want to move on to some short questions. Um, now, you get to spend a lot of time answering questions from the left, um, from supporters of yours like me. We're making things a little bit harder for you today. These are some quick questions that Caitlin, ha mostly Caitlin has, um, <laughs> questions from the right. And they're designed to be um, fairly quick questions. I get these questions from my dad every night. so I Okay, good. <laughs> then you've had, you've had some good uh, ample preparation time. Number one, Andrew, health care. Do you agree with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, some of the other candidates that we should eliminate private health care as part of a Medicare for all plan? That's not what they're proposing. In fact, uh, if you look at the plans, as uh, and if you look at my plan too, by the way, it allows people, even under a proposal like Medicare for all, to supplement the benefits that that public system would provide uh, in the private market, as you can do under Medicare today. Hmm. Okay, we may have to so, agree to disagree. I'm pretty sure in the debates last week, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were asked that directly, and they both confirmed that private health care would go away. Maybe not immediately, but on, on a phased approach. Well, so just a couple points of distinction, and I'll show you the, the site, because we've had this conversation on our campaign trail. So the proposal that I support says, look, if you 
are serious about getting to a place of universal coverage, the best way to do it is to strengthen Medicare so that it includes some benefits that aren't covered now, like dental and hearing and vision and long-term care. You'll lower the age of Medicare eligibility to zero so that all Americans can share a comprehensive package of benefits. And then you allow folks to supplement that plan if they choose on the private market, as you can do under Medicare today. You, if you have Medicare, you can, and you all, well, way too young, obviously, for that, but, and I am too, but uh, you can buy a supplemental plan on the private market. I will draw a distinction, by the way, between uh, what's sometimes called government-run healthcare and the kind of public insurance program that I support. I spent some time in London. I went to grad school there. We started. I had to leave because I ruptured, ruptured my appendix, which still rests, that appendix, at the National Health System there. Um, surgery was free for what it's worth <laughs> and more detail than you need before dinner. But that system, Britain's system, turns the doctors and nurses into government employees and actually has the government run the hospitals. That's not the system I support. Uh, I think competition is a good thing. I'm happy for, for hospitals and healthcare providers to compete. I do think that healthcare is a peculiar kind of product that doesn't usually follow the ordinary laws of economics. I'll just give you a, a, a quick example. So most people, even under the system of Medicare for All, um, are not going to use more uh, health care than they need because folks don't actually like to spend a lot of time in the hospital. People aren't going to suddenly sign up for like recreational heart surgery. It's just not that uh, appealing. The trouble is we've made a decision, this is a good thing, as a, as a country to subsidize health care at some point, right? We've said if you're dying and dropping dead on the door of an emergency room, we're not going to turn you away regardless of your ability to pay. I think that's the right decision for a moral country to make. We're not going to let people die um, at that point. But if you agree with that, and I think we should, then you got to ask, well, wouldn't it have been better for them and cheaper for us if we actually got folks access to preventive care, if we invested in early intervention instead of allowing folks to use the emergency room or forcing them to use the emergency room as their primary source of treatment? Isn't there a better way to go? And even just to do the math here, right? So we're spending $10,000 per person on healthcare in America, which is almost twice as much as the average in the rest of the industrialized world. It'd be one thing if we could afford it. But we can't. Half a million families are going bankrupt in the United States because of the cost of health care. It's now the single biggest source of bankruptcy in the U.S. Or if we were getting outcomes that were twice as good, but we're not. Our life expectancies aren't longer. Our infant mortality rates aren't lower. We're just leading the world in spending, and we're going broke. Uh, I guess the, the other question I, I'll pose I sometimes to, to audiences is, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself this question. How many politicians do you suppose outside of the United States tonight are campaigning on a promise to bring their constituents American-style health insurance, right? It's unlikely because it's not that we don't have some of the best doctors and nurses in the world. We do. It's just the system itself is not the most efficient, um, and it's crippling families and small businesses. Um, it's warping the economy. And at some point, I believe, this debate will no longer be political. It'll just be mathematical. Thank you, Andrew. Caitlin, what's your next question? That was not, that was not a short answer. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, uh, but a, a good segue into my next question. Um, at the first Democrat presidential debate back in June, uh, the moderator asked all of the candidates on the stage, and it was a different mix then than it was recently, uh, raise your hand if your government plan would provide coverage for undocumented immigrants. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Andrew, do you agree with most of the presidential candidates? I think they most support this, um, that illegal immigrants should receive health care beyond the emergent care that they have access to today in an emergency room, um, but that they should actually receive that health care under a plan like a Medicare for All. We've made the decision as a country, as I suggested earlier, that we're going to provide emergency care. It would be cheaper for us if folks, even those without proper documentation, uh, got access to preventive care. Cheaper for us um, and healthier for them. And frankly, healthier for us too, because a lot of uh, viruses, as you know, uh, don't stop to check for status or documents on their way to going to in infect somebody else. Um, my uh, deeper answer to this question, and we've tried to outline this in the course of our campaign and on our website at andrewromanoff.com, is to provide a system that doesn't treat human beings as illegal, but rather provides a, a plan for comprehensive immigration reform so that folks who are willing to work hard and play by the rules and pay taxes can actually enjoy the benefits of citizenship in a legal spot in this country instead of laboring in the shadows. And I also just want to point out from the left, I found that question of the debates to be misleading because... We have the status quo is that when anyone illegal or legal walks into an emergency room and can't pay for services that Medicaid pays the hospital for the services that were provided. So we're already doing that to a certain extent. So I feel like that question is asked 
for the sole purpose of making Trump loves that question. It, it makes the Democrats sound like they're saying something outrageous with respect to uh, providing health care for illegal immigrants when it's a very nuanced issue. Can I just suggest that you can do this in your editing if you want, but we, we shouldn't be talking about humans as uh, legal or illegal. Uh, I mean, you are undocumented or documented, but it's I mean, it's a, it's a term that offends a lot of folks, including me. I think the challenge is, and Forbes did an analysis on this last year, that American citizens are financing nearly $19 billion a year in health care for undocumented immigrants. Is the theory that either of you are presenting is that the savings that we'll get from not servicing undocumented people in a emergency room, in an emergency room rather, um, that that will be enough to offset adding them into an expanded kind of preventive care, medical dental vision, the whole works under a Medicare for all. I'm unclear on where you think the, the cost savings is there. Yes, is the answer to the, the first question and the second question uh, for that matter. So look, uh, I'd say a few things. Uh, one, yes, it is certainly cheaper to provide folks with access to preventive care than to use the ER as the primary source of treatment because that is the most expensive place of all and the meter's running and we're picking up the tab. Uh, I'll tell you, I had a conversation when I was on the healthcare committee in the state house with some docs who were working at a major uh, hospital in Denver. And I asked them, you know, how many folks who are in your waiting room today are coming in for conditions that aren't actually emergencies? They just didn't know where else to turn. Um, or they are emergencies, but they could have been prevented. And the docs, this was, you know, some years ago, but the doctors I spoke with told me that those two categories, uh, non-emergencies and what you might call sort of avoidable or preventable emergencies, accounted for more than half of the patients they saw that day uh, and every day. So yeah, I think it is cheaper, as the saying goes, for an ounce of prevention is, is worth a uh, a pound of cure. I will tell you, I mean, the, the, the conversation we ought to have in, as a country, though, is um, why we are perpetuating a system that says to folks who are uh, willing to work hard, we're going to treat you to a kind of second-class citizenship, benefit from the cheaper products and services that we get in return, but deny you the right to, to work in the sunshine and force you to labor uh, in the shadows. It's also worth pointing out one other piece here, uh, and we should we could talk another time, I suppose, about immigration policy generally, but immigrants in America are contributing more to the economy than they're consuming. And despite the president's lies, are committing crimes at lower rates than native-born Americans. I know the president has done his worst to demonize immigrants and refugees, to cage children, to tear the families apart, uh, to describe asylum as a hoax, to declare the country full, to undermine our moral standing around the world, and to dishonor our heritage here at home. Among the most lasting damage that this administration has done is the way in which he's chosen to treat our neighbors. Um, and it's it's an issue that matters a lot to me uh, as the son and grandson of immigrants um, and as a family um, because one of my own cousins um, came from uh, another country. I'll just share this story with you to, to illustrate the stakes. Uh, my little cousin, who was adopted from Guatemala at a very young age, has known no other country but ours, um, was riding to school on a bus in 2016 uh, and was only nine or ten years old, his classmates said to him, when Donald Trump wins, you're going to have to go back where you came from. So the, the president's decision to use not just a, a dog whistle but a bullhorn to embolden extremists, uh, invoking the language of white supremacy um, and demonizing uh, immigrants like my little cousin, is profoundly scarring to America. And we should not be surprised uh, when people take the hint and act on the president's threats when he describes the people of Mexico as rapists and criminals or uh, suggests that uh, we open fire on migrant families or laughs at that suggestion rather when it came from a supporter at a rally. I mean, this is a, a profound disgrace. Don't you think it's important, though, to distinguish between your broad use of the word immigrants, which I agree with you, immigrants are a wonderful part of our American fabric, and undocumented immigrants. So it seems like often the the discussion around crime rates and things like that and contributions and how much they pull out of the system and how much they contribute, it's often couched under this umbrella term of immigrants. I, I don't know anyone. Certainly, I can only speak for myself personally. I'm not against legal immigrants being in this country. Uh, but the, I think there are some legitimate questions and discussion to be had around 
undocumented immigrants. And so I think that that's an important distinction. Sure. So look, the law makes that distinction as well. And as you probably know, uh, Caitlin, half the folks uh, just about who uh, don't have proper documentation actually came to the country legally, but then overstayed their visas. So yeah, we need to create a system that provides clear rules uh, for employers and employees. And uh, and that provides a path to citizenship for people who are willing um, to to follow the rules. Uh, A colleague of mine in the House once, a fellow named Val Vigil, um, gave a very moving speech on this subject. He said, you know, if you think about the people who are struggling to get here, dying in many cases, literally, just to provide a better quality of life uh, for the for their kids, willing to endure any hardship and pay any price and bear any burden, um, do anything, as any of us would uh, for our kids. He said, maybe that's the sort of work ethic we should welcome in America. So yeah, I'm happy to lay out some stats in terms of the um, the, the economic benefits of immigration. Um, but you do know somebody, if not personally, um, who is not in favor of, of legal immigration. The president himself, at least, uh, is contemplating a proposal that would cap the number of refugees in this country at zero. And it's worth pointing out, just with respect to that particular population, that refugees have contributed about $63 billion uh, uh, on net to the economy over the last 10 years. Colorado itself has some 100,000 folks employed by immigrant-owned businesses. So yeah, I want to continue to provide a path, a legal path to citizenship, like the path that my grandparents and my mom uh, took, uh, and to welcome um, folks to contribute their talent to a nation that needs them. I think what this president has done, which is so profoundly upsetting to me and to so many, is to divide us along these lines, rather than to recognize that our diversity is a source of strength. Well, here's a question sort of from the right, Andrew. I know that Democratic candidate Tulsi Gabbard is popular among some conservatives, and she runs on a platform that the United States should stop spending trillions of dollars, not to mention lives, all over the world on wars, military aid, interfering in other countries. Um, do you agree with with her points on this platform? So I haven't read in detail uh, Congresswoman Gabbard's platform. I do think uh, the U.S. faces real threats around the world uh, and that we should be prepared to defend ourselves uh, and support our allies in uh, against those threats. Uh, I think military recourse ought to be the last option on the table, but I don't think we can remove it. I happen to believe, as I've done some work, that uh, international development and, for that matter, diplomacy, uh, are useful tools uh, in avoiding this path of endless wars. I remember, and I can't I can recall the name, uh, a, a former Pentagon leader was testifying in Congress when the Trump administration was proposing, I believe, uh, to cut the State Department budget. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that diplomacy and international aid themselves r- represent a far tinier fraction of the federal budget than, than most Americans perhaps realize. Uh, and the Pentagon leader testified that if Congress followed through on those cuts, cut, in other words, the, the budget for diplomats, Congress would have to authorize more money for, bu- for bullets because it turns out to be cheaper to forge these alliances and um, improve uh, our relationships around the world than just to arm ourselves to the teeth. Right. But the outrageous spending on military, the military industrial complex, uh, would you agree, you know, is something that we should look at? Sure. Sorry. So, yeah, look, I think the Pentagon budget, like every other part of the federal budget, ought to be on the table for scrutiny and not somehow protected just because the military industrial complex, the complex that President Eisenhower warned us against, um, has succeeded in sort of ingratiating itself with so many members of Congress. You asked when we started this conversation, Shelley, about the role of money, uh, not just in in terms of economics and jobs and businesses, but at least I took it to be the role of money in politics as well. And there's a clear connection between the way in which we finance our campaigns and the decisions that emerge, and even the elected officials uh, who emerge from uh, from the elections themselves. So, uh, if you serve on the Armed Services Committee and <laughs> you owe your seat in part to the defense industry, it shouldn't be a great surprise that you are unwilling to bite the hand that feeds you. You can follow the same logic through the healthcare committees when insurance companies and drug companies bankroll both parties um, and then block reform, or when the fossil fuel industry does the same with respect to the Energy and Natural Resources Committee and prevents us from taking the climate action we need. Yeah, I think ironically, military spending is one of the few parts of the federal budget that actually is on the the table for discussion in every, any given year, right? It's part of the discretionary spending bucket. And Shelley and I have talked about this before. The only, um, there's about 70% as you think about mandatory spending, so social programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, plus interest on the national debt, that gets you to about 68% of federal spending, I think, for 2017. Uh, military spending of that remaining 30%, just to make the math simple, uh, it's just under half. So military spending 
is actually down as we think as a think of it as a percentage of that discretionary fund. Uh, in 2018, we spent 623 billion dollars. That was about 47 percent of that discretionary fund. In 2015, it was 54 percent. So I don't know, Shelley, and you've talked about this before. I don't know what you think the right number is for spending for military, um, but it is not a large portion of the federal federal spending today. I think it is a large portion uh, relative. 15 percent. It's, it's relative, but it's a, it's a very large portion. I, I think it's large that we spend tens of billions of dollars every month in Afghanistan alone or in Iraq alone. We spend tens of millions of dollars um, sending uh, uh, sending weapons to countries all over the world and uh, trying to change the, the course of their destiny. Can I just add one other point on, on this? Um, so I, I, two points, I guess, real quick. One, uh, you know, the question we ought to ask with respect to the defense budget is not sort of what the right number is, although that's important if you're trying to actually balance a federal budget, which has been out of whack for a while. But, you know, what do we need to actually defend the nation, which is the top priority that any federal government should preserve? It's worth pointing out, too, though, that the last time I checked, and the numbers I've got come from about 2015, we were spending something like $650 billion subsidizing the oil and gas and coal industry, in part because the oil, the fossil fuel industry spends so much money subsidizing uh, members of Congress. That was more than we spent that year, at least, on national defense, and 10 times as much as we spent on the federal budget on education. So we haven't talked much about the climate crisis, and it might be a point of agreement, I don't know. Um, but to me, we ought to be ending those subsidies, using that money instead to invest in the research and development of uh, renewable uh, energy sources in order to spare our planet from the ravages of this climate crisis. So you're right. I mean, I think it's appropriate for every part of the federal budget uh, to be uh, on the table and for us to to do a better job of making sure the budget reflects our values. Do you agree with that for mandatory spending then? Would you propose that on an annual appropriations basis, basis that that mandatory spending around social programs is up for discussion and review? Because right now it's on autopilot, right? Yeah, I think we ought to be strengthening Medicare, actually, and strengthening Social Security, not cutting them. But regardless of if it's more money or less money, it sounds like you would support, which I support as well, so perhaps this is common ground for us. I think the fact that our Congress, and I think Shelley agrees, the fact that they're only really discussing in that appropriations process every year about 30% of the federal spending, that to me as a taxpayer is abhorrent. I think that they should be discussing 100% of that every single year. Well, we got to make sure that we honor the commitments that we've made to folks who are benefiting from those programs and have paid into them. I agree with that, but I think that we should also be looking towards the future around uh, if those programs are sustainable and do they need changes. Okay, last question, Caitlin. Last question from me, Andrew, is do you support the impeachment of President Trump? If I were in the U.S. House today, and I said this, by the way, when the uh, special counsel's report came out and when he held a press conference and when he testified before Congress, if I were in the House today, not the job I'm running for, um, I would support the commencement of an impeachment inquiry for the simple reason that even the redacted version of the report that's available to us lays out multiple instances in which the president exercised what could be conceived as undue influence. Um, I know that there are a lot of jittery Democrats in the House who are worried about either the impact on their reelection or the prospects of a vote in the Senate to remove uh, Donald Trump, to convict him and remove him from office. But that's not the question before the House. Uh, the question before the House is whether there are, the question I take it you're asking is whether there's sufficient grounds at least uh, to conduct that inquiry. I believe there are. And I take Elizabeth Warren, uh, take Elizabeth Warren's advice here. She said, there's not a political convenience exception to the Constitution. So I think the House ought to do its duty um, and begin that investigation. In wrapping up, Andrew, I had a final question about your campaign. You have a lot of support all across Colorado. Uh, I'm one of your supporters. Thank you. Now that I'm still working on Caitlin. <laughs> By the way, listeners, Shelly claims she's unaffiliated. I don't know. <laughs> she should be a purple mom then. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it should be red mom, purple mom, maybe. <laughs> and just to answer your earlier curiosity, no, we don't agree on climate on climate. Oh, rats. Climate. We should all agree on that. We'll it's the another, fundamental test of our time. It's a topic for another day for us. My question is, now that John Hickenlooper has entered your race. I'm sorry, who? Uh, who's well actually well known in Colorado. In my view, maybe not progressive enough for today's Colorado. Can you tell us why you think you are better for this position than John Hickenlooper? Sure. Well, I think John already answered that question. He said, I don't want to be a senator and I wouldn't be good at it. I believe him. 
so uh, we differ on a number of issues. And he and I are not the only candidates in this race. To be clear, there's about 10 Democrats seeking the nomination. I bring the strongest record of legislative leadership. Uh, you can ask the 50 different state and national organizations that recognized uh, my service in the state legislature. Uh, I believe I bring the, the broadest base of grassroots support. We've got endorsements now, not from the national party. They're not keen on my candidacy, but from more than 300 county commissioners and mayors, school board members, legislators, city council members, not all of them, by the way, Democrats. Uh, in fact, the endorsement that makes me proudest came from the other side of the aisle, a former colleague of mine in the House, a fellow you may know named Mike May. Uh, he's a Republican from Parker. Um, he was the minority leader when I was the Speaker of the House. He wrote to me not long after I announced my candidacy. He said, my wife and I would like to support your campaign for the U.S. Senate. I said, well, well thanks, Mike, but I'm a Democrat. I, I just wanted to remind him. And he said, I know, because he remembered that. Uh, but then he said, uh, my country matters more than my party, and we would be honored to call you our senator. Now, this is a fellow who served with Cory Gardner and with me uh, in the state legislature. I thought to myself, well, first I thought, we're going to put you on TV, because that's a great endorsement. <laughs> but then I thought, it's exactly the, the spirit that's missing from Washington, where we've retreated into these, as you all have not, uh, into these silos uh, and put the country's interests somehow secondary to our party's interests. So what makes me different and better and best equipped, in my view, uh, to represent Colorado in the U.S. Senate is the fact that I will owe this seat not to the party bosses or power brokers in Washington, which are doing everything they possibly can to sabotage my campaign, uh, but rather to the people of Colorado. And it's worth pointing out, under the system we've got, the single best system of government in the world, the people actually get to make these decisions. Votes get cast in this race in about nine months. Uh, I know, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Central Campaign Committee have already made their decision, but they don't get to vote here. They just act that way. Uh, so we've encouraged folks to sign on to AndrewRomanoff.com. We've recruited 2,000 volunteers, 9,000 donors, uh, 90% of them uh, in Colorado. And we're building the kind of grassroots campaign and presenting the kind of alternative, I think, both to Cory Gardner and to some of the other Democrats in this race that will enable us to win. Well, we are very grateful that you joined us today, Andrew. Listeners, you can learn more about Andrew Romanoff uh, for United States Senate at AndrewRomanoff.com. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate it.